Para que no. Pero. Seeing Red the Pod, episode 65. Wow. <laughs> Where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm April, and here with me today is Melody. Melody, we have a, a big guest today. Yes. Are Can I? I just, I, I need to say, I just realized just this exact moment, we didn't make a Beatles reference when we were 64. <laughs> oh. Dang it. I just really feel like we should have, somebody should have sung that a little bit when we were doing episode well, 64. Now, now I have we, a life regret. Uh, now we qualify for Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we can stop worrying about healthcare all the time. Hooray. Exactly. That'd be great. Um, but speaking of healthcare, all the kids can get vaccinated. Yay! Including uh, your kid and, and my your kid. kid. Stephanie, who's not here tonight, but her kid got vaccinated. All our kids are vaccinated. All these kids. It's the greatest. Well, let's. And they made it look so fun down there at the county health department (gasps) event. Yeah, in Lincoln, they did that. And then um, I saw in Omaha, kids were starting to get vaccinated, I think, within a day or two of the announcement. And I haven't heard really what it looks like across the state. And I need to read up on that. But. Um, I'm just so happy for the kids. This is just a yeah. great, it's a great milestone. Well, let's bring our guest in. Um, she is, she does so much spiritual work, healing work, earth work, social justice work. And I'm super interested to hear and learn more about her because I don't really know her that well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this interview for sure. Melody has this specialty of just finding interesting people and calling them and be like, you should be on our pod. And they just say, <laughs> okay. And it's I great. mean, I feel like if I want to learn more about somebody, probably other people do too. I yeah. just, you know, that's kind of how I see it. And also if people want to know more about somebody that's doing interesting work in Nebraska, you should tell us and we'll try to get them on the pod if, you know, we agree with your recommendation. I would say you and Stephanie are less introverted than me. Like you guys talk to everybody. The fact that I'm on this pod even is like, what? How did I end up here? (laughs) Okay, let's bring her on. Okay. Today's guest is Renee Sansusi with a degree in education from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and being an Omaha woman and practitioner of traditional healing, Renee combines her life experiences with a learning process that helps learners to engage in their own cultural identities and languages. Renee has been a teaching artist with the Lead Center for Performing Arts since 2009. She has presented at numerous conferences and workshops on various topics relating to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two spirits, a native science, history of Indian education, native languages, poetry, and sustainability. 
Sansusi was featured last year in the PBS American Masters series Unladylike 2020. Susan LaFleche Picot, the first American Indian doctor. She was also a finalist for a 2020 Inspire Award celebrating women leaders in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome, Renee. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. What a resume. I mean, that's yeah. just, it's just, you know, the breadth of accolades. It's impressive. Well, thank it's you. Impressive. So, you know, at some point before you had all of these accolades, you were growing up somewhere and having a childhood. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your history and um, your path? Sure. First of all, when I, whenever I'm presenting or speaking or doing anything like this, uh, I always talk about, I always introduce myself. So I always say in Umaha. And so I said, uh, let me introduce myself. My Omaha name is Sacred Horsewoman. My white man name or English name, as we often say, is Renee Sansusi. And I'm an Umaha woman. And I usually begin that way because what it does is it presents me as, you know, exactly who I am. And people, if they're aware of, you know, anything about me, you know, my, my tribe, you know, the Omaha tribe of Nebraska, then they have an idea that, you know, this is where I'm from. I'm from the Omaha nation. So when people say that, you know, where are you from? That's usually what I say. I'll say, I'm from the Omaha Nation. That's the difference, you know, in saying, uh, where do you live? So uh, what that means is that I'm addressing where I'm from territorially. The Omaha tribe's uh, original homelands were throughout eastern Nebraska, going into South Dakota, into Minnesota, and then into Western Iowa and on down, you know, toward Missouri. So we had extensive homelands. So to me, when I say I'm from the Omaha nation, that's what I'm saying. I'm from that territory. And a lot of times people don't understand that either, you know, because this is how a native person thinks and sees the land. We still see it as our traditional territories. We don't think about the states. You know, the states to us are, you know, these are something that came along, you know, after we've been living here for thousands of years. So this is a very recent, you know, occupation. And it's it's hard sometimes to explain that because, you know, right away people get really defensive about that. So that's one thing I will make note of, you know, that I'm from, my territory, but on the other hand, where I was born and have lived for well over half my life is here in Lincoln. So, you know, I was born here at St. Elizabeth Hospital and uh, the old hospital used to be over on uh, close to 13th and South Street before they, you know, built a new one and moved it out to 70th Street. 
So I was born uh, here, you know, to my parents. My parents uh, moved here from the Omaha Indian Reservation in about 1955. I think my dad was already living here, but he was courting my mom. And then when they got married, then they moved up here. So my uh, most of my family was here at one time. My grandparents were here. All my aunts and uncles were here. All my cousins were here. And we had a large family. So, so I always talk about, I grew up Omaha, Maha, here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And for the first five years of my life, I was raised in a primarily Omaha culture. So... I talk about that too, you know, in what happened that being Maha in Lincoln, you know, meant that I was hearing our music, our songs, hearing the language, you know, going to our dances. And that changed when I was sent to school. So once I was sent to the public school system, then I always felt like that's when the confusion began for me. So, you know, going through that kind of culture shock, I, I never really, I felt like I never really adapted. And it didn't matter what I did, you know, I just was, you know, I, I felt really lost all the way through school. Uh, mostly because, you know, I was always pretty much the only native student in uh, predominantly white schools. And then it was also like uh, because the school system and the teachers and uh, fellow students had no idea, no, nothing, knew nothing about Native people. It was a struggle for me. So that was like uh, my introduction to, I guess you'd say, the white culture. And like I said, I struggled with that. And I think uh, up until I was in the fourth grade, I felt like I just went along with everything and, you know, didn't try to question or fight back or do anything like that. Uh, I, I just remember one time, I think I was in the first grade at Calvert Elementary. And I remember the, the teacher told us that day, Today we're going to we're going to learn about Indian dancing, you know, American Indian dancing, and you know, right away I was like, really, you know, I wonder. Okay, so in my mind I was like trying to figure out what what she meant and what was going to happen. So what she meant was that she had this idea and everything already about how, what uh, American Indians how they sing and dance. So that's what she did. She had a, she had some kind of album and she put that on a turntable and then, I don't know, put on this really crazy kind of Indian singing, I suppose that's what it was. But it was so strange to me. It made no sense. It was like very stereotypical. And I remember feeling deeply embarrassed, like, oh, wow. And at that point, you know, I raised my hand and I said, teacher, we don't, you know, our music doesn't sound like that. 
and I was only like uh, six, maybe five, six years old. And then she got everybody up, all the students, and she made everybody like do this really weird, strange, skip kind of dance. Again, very stereotypical. And again, I felt really embarrassed. And I was like, I did not want to dance like that. So I was just kind of like walking like in the circle. And I remember feeling just really like, oh, I had no words to, uh, you know, I couldn't articulate what I was feeling. But it really left an impression upon me, you know, for the rest of my life, because I felt that if that's all they know, and I, like I said, I grew up, you know, even at that young age, I had already had so much exposure to my own culture that I already knew that I could, hey, I, I could have told them, hey, we can bring in singers here and we can do some dances if that's what you want. But again, like I said, being a child, I had no way to articulate through my confusion. So I can honestly say that that uh, experience here in Lincoln, I felt like for uh, most of my teen years, this was what I was always experiencing. But what changed, like I said, for me in the fourth grade was that uh, my parents became members of the American Indian Movement. And we were traveling uh, to the marches and to the rallies. And so for me, that's when I was exposed to what I knew really, really needed to happen, you know, in regards to American Indian civil rights. And that's what influenced me for the rest of my life, because those experiences, as I, you know, was like around 10, 11, 12, that's what shaped my worldview because I wasn't willing to just be, you know, go along with everything that the school system was trying to, you know, uh, condition or, or uh, brainwash me with. I wasn't content with that. But again, like I said, there was no way to explain or to express or other than attending the marches. But there really what was what it was what, what I realized now since I've become an educator is that I had no one there to interpret my experiences for me, to help me to understand or to find the words. And you know, my parents were always busy, and I had no one else there to, to guide me in the process. So one thing I was always missing throughout, I'd hear my grandparents and parents talk about our traditional ceremonies. And I'd hear them say, we once had these things, these ceremonial items. And I, you know, would ask like, well, what happened? You know, why don't we have them anymore? But again, no one would answer me, I mean, from my family. Uh, And I I often think about that. And I think they also lacked the, you know, the way to explain what happened. It wasn't until we moved to the Omaha Indian Reservation in 1980 that everything started to make sense. When we moved back, then I started to hear about sweat lodge ceremonies and everything, you know, all the ceremonies. So I wanted to attend them. And that's what we would do, my mom and I. We'd go to the sweat lodges. And so it all began slowly for me. Because, you know, by that time I was 
about 18, 19. And up until that point in my life, I actually believed that it was all gone. So what was happening, why there, you know, why I didn't have that in my life growing up was that it was outlawed. Our traditional ways were outlawed until 1978. And they were outlawed uh, after the 1890s. So Can our, our spirituality. I'm curious what kind of specific things were outlawed? Our spiritual ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So everything. I mean, it was across the country, all the tribes could no longer practice their spiritual ceremonies. So like was the sweat lodge one of the type of things that were yeah, banned? And no, you, that's why yeah, that was so new up, to you. I didn't that, see anything like that. That makes sense. You know, there was the Native American church, but that wasn't, you know, to me that was, you know, my dad wouldn't let us go. You know, Native American church was like a synthesis of Christianity and uh, some of our ceremonies. But my dad wasn't a believer, so he wouldn't let us go to those. So I didn't have that either. And, you know, I just heard what my pa- grandparents had said. We had um, sacred pipes. You know, we had sacred items that we, you know, had with us, that kept with us. So not having that kind of experience and, you know, growing up and going to churches and whatnot, that just didn't do it. You know, I was like, oh man, that's, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. So that's why I felt lost until, you know, we moved back and then I began to go to the sweat lodge ceremonies at home. But I learned that that's what happened. Those only became possible after the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978. When that became a a federal policy, then we were no longer fearful of practicing our traditional ceremonies. Because before that, everything was taken underground and hidden away because we could be imprisoned. So... In the country that was based on the freedom of religion, the first people here, the indigenous people, were the only ones denied that right. And believe me, it impacted us greatly. So after 1978 and after 1980, when I moved back, when my family moved back to the reservation, and then I began to go to the sweat, it came to a time where... uh, I first uh, began to go to ceremonies and the one I really went to that really uh, made a powerful impression upon me was when we sent for a medicine man to help my dad. And my dad was extremely ill. The white doctors sent him home from the hospital, essentially sent him home to die. And so... You know, we as a family decided to send for this medicine man that my uncle went to. And so, you know, this medicine man lived in South Dakota. He was Lakota. And we're Omaha, so different tribes. But we didn't have those kinds of medicine people left in our tribe anymore. But once that all happened, that's when my life changed because I saw my dad get healed. And that's all it took for me. I said, okay, you know, I want this life. 
I want to learn. I want to be, you know, I want to be a part of this. And it took, you know, maybe seven years or so because uh, the medicine people that were coming around my family at that time didn't want me to take on this life right away. They told me to go and enjoy my life. They said, enjoy yourself because once you start on this path, then it's a path of suffering. And it's hard, you know. So I did as they told me to, you know. Then when the time came, then I did, you know, start in uh, learning about the ceremonies and uh, participating. And then I understood why they told me, you know, to hold off. Why yeah. was it, um, like, what would you, is there a name that you would call the path that you started on? Was well, spiritual path. That's what I say. Okay. Okay. So, and some people would say a traditional spiritual or traditional spirituality. So for me, and, you know, since that time, this, you know, was in the 80s. This was like in 85, 86 when I started on my path. And since that time, up until now, you know, everything that uh, is, has been happening has all been about healing. And uh, Native people, believe me, you know, since, you know, 1978, many people have uh, worked hard to restore our traditional ways of life. So, you know, as I grew older, this is what I dedicated my life to doing was to restoring this work I do now. And, you know, when I say I'm a traditional practitioner, I'm not saying I'm a medicine woman. That's a whole different, that's a whole level, you know, of, you know, that I'm not even at that level. I don't regard myself in that way. But as a practitioner now, you know, I follow my path. I follow the ways, everything that I've learned from all my, my elders and spiritual guides, you know, medicine people that I've had over the years to help me to become what I am now, which is like a teacher. So, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. That's what I always, you know, when I'm helping people, I tell them that, you know, things don't happen overnight. It's like it takes work and you have to work on it. You have to work on your own healing in order to you know, get yourself set up in a, you know, like in a good direction. Mm -hmm. And it takes time to figure all that out and to balance yourself out. You know. But, you know, um, I got married this way. You know, I had my children this way. My children, you know, grew up this way because I didn't want them to be like me, you know, growing up. I felt empty and lost and confused and and I, you know, as soon as I could, they, you know, they were born into this and they've been raised this way. So they know that it's all here for them. And How did you um, approach education with your children? I homeschooled my children. Because when I became an educator, uh, I went to the UNL Native American Career Ladder Project. That's what it was called. 
and it was a federally funded program through UNL to create more Native American teachers. So when I was in this program, and I'm talking 21 years ago, uh, our directive, you know, of our program was to study our history, our culture, and our languages. So for me, as an educator, as a student, I, you know, immersed myself in everything. And the belief or the, the outcome, hopefully, the hopeful outcome, I guess you'd say, was that uh, if once I became an, a teacher, then I would be teaching in, the, in our public school system with Native students, you know, teaching Native students to show that, you know, Native teachers existed. Well, it didn't exactly go the way, you know, I had thought or, you know, the way the whole program was set up. I think the things that started to happen was, especially at the time, you know, No Child Left Behind began that year that I graduated. And that really shifted so much of the direction of like Omaha Nation Public School, for instance. And they were, you know, our focus, my focus as a, teacher was to focus on teaching our history, you know, the real history. And, uh, but once No Child Left Behind came in and because Omaha Nation is, you know, the, is a public school, it's a state school, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't uh, so possible. Now, now they had to fulfill these requirements, you know, set up by that No Child Left Behind law. So, for me, it really changed how I looked at education. I went to work for the Nebraska Department of Education. And again, you know, for everything that they had done for me, you know, they sent me all over the country, you know, for training and they invested, you know, in my training. However, we, you know, had conflicts because I saw myself as serving our native communities, the native, uh, the tribes, you know, the schools that were on the Indian reservations. That's where I was serving. But um, I was supposed to be their Indian. So what happened is that because I wasn't their Indian, then, you know, we had some major conflicts and any um, a number of uh, areas. And it just came down to the point where, you know, I, I had filed some lawsuits, you know, on and on. It was really dramatic. But, but in the process, what I learned was that, okay, I'm not that kind of educator. And uh, when I left the, the Nebraska Department of Ed, and, you know, I had a whole different outlook about education. One of my mentors... Uh, Dr. David Bolio of the White Earth uh, Reservation, uh, White Earth Tribe, uh, Ojibwe. He's the one who guided me. He guided me to going to uh, the National Indian Education Association Conference in Phoenix. And this was in 2004. And he said, I think you should check out this new organization because it will help you. And I followed his advice. I went there. I found this organization that was just newly forming. 
and they asked for volunteers, so I volunteered. And am I ever glad I did that? Because what the organization was all about was about uh, Indian education sovereignty, tribal education sovereignty. And I served on their board for about four years. And in that time, I learned so much. So by the time I did leave, you know, when I uh, was in different and did a whole different area in my life, I can look back and I still think about that. And I think, wow, that was probably the best education I received, you know, even more so than college. Because everything that I learned in that organization, it was called the Tribal Education Department's National Assembly. Everything that I learned, I still have with me. You know, these are like all the legal documents. So this allowed me to figure out like, okay, how do I, what do I do with this now? How do I help people to understand? So like I said, I homeschooled my kids because I wasn't satisfied with how they were being educated and I didn't want them to feel uh, disconnected from themselves, you know, their identities as Lakota. My kids are Lakota. So everything I did, I, you know, I based it on what I learned from Tedna and uh, put everything into praxis. The next thing that I did was I started going through decolonization training with uh, Faith uh, Spotted Eagle. And she's a Dakota woman out of South Dakota. And also Dr. Michael Yellowbird. And he's, uh, I, I know I'm not gonna say it right, but he's a uh, Arikara. And I, I know they have a different name they use in their language. And I don't wanna even try it. But he's uh, done all this work in decolonization. So from those two, I learned and then continued on, you know, with my own my own training with uh, decolonization practices. And this was in 2005, 2006, 2007. So again, it influenced me to the point where I was like, okay, now what else do I need to do? I'm I'm um, following my spiritual path, but I'm also going on a different journey professionally than, you know, even further than I had imagined, you know, because I began, like I said, I felt humbly in education and I thought I was going to be a, a public school teacher, but that didn't happen. And then it was like, I just kept moving forward. And finally, I realized, okay, with everything that I have now, I can become a consultant. So this is when my consulting work began, uh, starting in like 2005 until now. You know, I've been doing consulting since that time. But in the process, what was happening for me, you know, as I'm talking about my journey is that, you know, my spiritual life, uh, intensified, especially after the children's, my, my kids' father and I separated. And at, at first I felt really distressed, you know, because he left us high and dry. And at the time I was in between contracts. So, you know, literally I had to 
scramble around and figure out how I was going to support my family. But what it also did in that time was uh, it allowed me to begin my own healing journey. You know, because I'd been focused on a spiritual path, but I was focused on, you know, on an outward, like, uh, I guess you'd say everything was outside of me. But this, at this point, I was starting to focus in, internally. Now I had to really look at myself and see what it was that I needed to do to heal myself. So that's where my trauma work started. You know, I was going to therapy and I continued going to ceremonies, uh, traditional healing ceremonies, and this time more for help for myself. So again, you know, what happened and at that point was that uh, I had an awakening. And then this awakening was what I call, you know, to my grandmother's way of life. And my grandmother passed away in 1989. But she had a way of life that I only, you know, just knew a little bit about. I, I heard things and that was it. And I never had the opportunity to sit down with her and ask her, you know, what, what her life had been like. And, uh, but it was at that point, you know, like after, like I said, my children's father and I separated that this is when I had this awakening. And then I found myself looking and realizing this is what my grandmother was doing. I'm beginning to understand it now. And now I want that way of life back. However, because everything that my grandmother had been practicing spiritually uh, had been dismantled in the 50s. And there were no more practitioners left. So it left me in a bind, like, where do I go? What do I do? How do I, you know, how do I find this way? And what, where I went was uh, to Minnesota because I learned that the Ojibwe people, the Anishinaabe people still maintain this way of life that my grandmother had once uh, practiced. And that's how I wound up going to Minnesota and living there for a time period. And, but in this time that I was there and, you know, I returned back home, back to Nebraska in 2008. So I was in Minnesota from 2007 to 2008. And I found the people I needed to learn from, the Ojibwe uh, spiritual practitioners. Uh, but what it also exposed me to was to the teachings of uh, the women. So uh, the women, as I learned, are the ones who take care of the water. They are the protectors of the water, spiritually, ceremonially. And uh, the men's roles were to take care of the fire. So, you know, there was a balance there you know, in uh, between the men and the women. But the women that I had met during that time and for years after were some very powerful women, to even to now, you know, the women that I know that are battling up there in Minnesota are all spiritual practitioners of what I believe in. 
So this work about the water, you know, that's, you know, spiritually, that's when it began for me. So some, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with being called a water protector because to me, the water protectors are these women that I know up there who have accomplished so much spiritually that they are, you know, they are conducting these kinds of ceremonies and taking care of the water and battling for the water 24-7. And I feel that uh, I'm probably one of, I don't know if there's any others like me here uh, in that regard. But I do my best while I'm here. But every so often I do return back up north, you know, and to go to the ceremonies and uh, to me to get recharged with all these women, powerful women that are up there. So, you know, Winona Laduke is one, you know, great grandmother, Mary Lyons is another. You have all these women that are doing this work with the water. And now uh, what I've seen um, lately is to work with uh, my sister, my punka sister, Casey Camp Horanek down in Oklahoma with her uh, water ceremonies and then uh, the water protecting that she does. And of course, Casey speaks all over the world. So these are the women that I've looked to for guidance. You know, there's also uh, one of my teachers, her name, her name's Doreen Day. Wabanukwe, and she's very well known up in the north for all the work that she does. So these women inspire me because, you know, the work that they do is all about healing. So it might look like, you know, they're just doing water protecting work and on and on, but really what the work is, is all about healing. And so for my journey, when I'm trying to explain that to people because they don't always understand, like, Renee, you're all over the place. Why, you know, why do you do that? And I tell them, because my work, the focus is about healing. Whether it's about Indian education, it's about healing because we're talking about the boarding school systems that, you know, everything that we had gone through as Native people. And now, you know, we know with the boarding school system, what they're finding are all the mass graves, right? That's going on. Mm -hmm. The last number I knew was about 7,000 that they have found so far. Children, Native children that were buried in, you know, these mass graves across Canada and the United States. But we know there's more because in the history, we know what happened to our people. Our people talked about that. My mom had her stories. So we know what, you know, that, a lot of these kids that were taken away forcibly from their families and sent to these boarding schools did not return home. Where did they go? So we know that they, you know, that they died there somewhere and were buried there. So now that they're finding them, you know, now people are like wondering, you know, especially non-natives, you know, they wonder how, how can this be? This is terrible. But it's like, you never talk to us. We've always known that they're there. So, you know, it's that kind of uh, history that's what moves me. Because if I want to help our people, then I'm looking at our history and saying, what do our people need help with? 
is that part of it is the boarding school because there you know I know a lot of people my age who are survivors of boarding school and I've heard their stories so uh, I don't want my children to go through that kind of educational you know, brutality I think that's a really important point Renee if you don't mind would you tell me how old you are I am 59 years old. Yeah, so you're 59 years old, and there are people that you are regularly talking to around the country that went to these boarding schools, and they're still alive, and their children are alive, and their grandchildren are alive, and these things didn't happen that long ago. No. They very recently happened, and I think sometimes when we talk about – you know, when you talk about these things, it's like, oh, well, it was a long time ago and we should all move on. But it wasn't a long time ago. We don't know where all of the children ended up. They're still missing. Yes. And we, people, there's been no change. So how could there yes. be healing? Yes. The only healing that we can do is within ourselves because we don't expect it to come from, you know, the institutions They're not our institutions. We didn't create them. They're not for our benefit. So for us, you know, our traditional spirituality practices, our ceremonies are what, you know, that's what we're turning to, you know, for our healing. And I could tell you so many people are, uh, they've had some really terrible experiences throughout their lives and you know when they've dealt with such brutality you know I I completely understand why they turn to alcohol and drugs to numb their pain so for those who choose to heal then they often come back to the ceremonies that's where they find it you know so for me you know when I focus on all these issues you know, whether, like I said, you know, with the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit, and all that work, you know, has to do with what's happening, an ongoing thing that's happening with uh, our women. And one thing that I've been talking about this year, because I've done many MMIW talks now, presentations throughout this year and the past year and so forth, one thing that comes to, to mind with people is they're, you know, they're trying to wrap their minds around this, like how, what, you know, what's really going on? Well, and I remind them, it's been an ongoing thing since uh, first contact, you know, since the, you know, from the time that Columbus stepped on the shores of, you know, the Caribbean, our Taino relatives went through it. And then it continued onward, you know, after, uh, the people that came here, especially the ones that, you know, developed or, you know, created that false document of discovery. And I think a lot of doctrine, people just doctrine of discovery, sorry. So that, you know, to gain legal, in their eyes, to gain legal access to uh, indigenous lands. Mm-hmm. So that's when everything changed for us. And that's when uh, women were targeted immediately. So I think people thought it just stopped, you know, (laughs) and it didn't. 
Yeah, it's been going on for over 500 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the things I talk about in regards to MMIW is uh, the inequity that's involved in uh, media, you know, and that came, that was glaring uh, when uh, Gabby Petito went missing. And, you know, in Wyoming and, you know, look what the media did, you know, the police, every, you know, they were all over that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but what uh, came to light was that just in the state of Wyoming alone, where Gabby Petito went missing, there are over 700 MMIW, MMIP, over 700. And where's the media coverage for that? That's what people have been asking over and over. So, you know, talk about these things. People, when they want to, they, you know, they want to make light of everything, you know. And for me, it's like, I'm not going to stop speaking. I'm not going to stop addressing these issues because, you know, you need to hear it. You know, and you need to understand what's really happening. And this is, you know, we're talking about being targeted. It's racism. You know, it's erasure, it's violence. And that's what we're experiencing at higher levels than any other group of women in this country, any other people. And we only represent maybe less than 2% of the population, but we are at the highest of everything. So my work is, you know, I work from a core of healing. But in all these issues that I, address, that I address, they're all connected to, you know, our experience as being Native, and especially as a Native woman. So what does it look like going forward for you? It sounds like in your life history, unexpected doors keep coming your way and you open them and go through do, do you think that's what the future will look like for you? Do you have a plan? I always have plans, you know, but they never <laughs> quite go the way I, you know, have them planned out because something else always comes around. And right now, what has been happening is that, uh, you know, more and more speaking, you know, the, the keynotes, you know, everything that's happening, I don't foresee that stopping you know, in the foreseeable future. In fact, as I'm going along and as uh, everything else that I'm doing, you know, because I'm a consultant as well, so I consult with different organizations. That's how I make my living. And then uh, my spiritual life, you know, that's how I help the people, you know, through the ceremonies and so forth. But I foresee that, you know, uh, I will continue to carry out my work, you know, whether that's with MMIW or with the environment, because to us, to Native people, there's no separation. You know, the, the land is what we're talking about. And because everything that's happening to the land environmentally, you know, all the violence against Mother Earth is also violence against Native women and children. And it's all interconnected. So right now, as I'm going along, you know, I'll continue doing my consulting work, 
but I also continue doing my keynotes and presentations that I do. And then I'm going to be writing at some point. You know, when I find time, you know, I try to write. But I got so many things going on. But uh, when I'm published, I imagine I'll be doing even more speaking at that, you know, after that. So it's a matter of time, you know, finding the time and then making it happen. Can you tell us what so, you're writing about? Well, I'm writing, um, but, you know, I was working on my mother's biography with her when she passed away. And then I set it aside. So I want to pick that up and finish her biography and then write my memoirs in, uh, as a part of that because, you know, the work that she was doing was so intertwined with my own. And then continue to write about other issues. I mean, there's just about anything I could write about. So with the women that I know, like I said, uh, a number of them are at the, in Glasgow, Scotland right now with the mm -hmm. uh, COP26. So I've been keeping track of what's going on over there. And like today, for example, they had a water ceremony. And I missed it all the way around. I was trying to catch, you know, catch up on, the, on their uh, feed. But I missed that this morning. And then, uh, like on Tuesday, Honor the Earth is going to be on, on the air uh, on November 9th. They're going to be uh, giving their testimonies and so on and so forth uh, at um, COP26. COP but it's like, for me, I feel like uh, this work that I'm doing, is it just one area? You know, I don't regard myself as, you know, just, you know, as one thing or whatever. I'm like, you know, yes, I am all over the place because I'm addressing all of these issues, whether they have to do with historical trauma or Native women, you know, or writing you know, or being an artist. You know, it's all, to me, it's all connected. So I want to read something here from uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network. And they said, we're here at uh, hashtag COP26, ready to fight for the front lines. Re-envision, regenerate, frontline solutions and just transition. So the It Takes Roots frontline delegation is on the ground in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26 to amplify the leadership and analysis of frontline communities and workers in the struggle for climate justice, environmental justice, and just transition. Since those closest to the problems are the best positioned to envision the transformative solutions we need, we are here to shift the landscape of political, economic, and cultural power and to push back against the entrenchment of false solutions. In particular, the use of carbon pricing and market mechanisms, geoengineering techno fixes and carbon offsets. The UNFCCC continues to negotiate on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And, you know, when I read all that and I'm like, wow, uh, the work I do is a part of that. You know, the work I do is about, you know, pushing back against uh, everything that not only that I have experienced, but I always tell my kids, 
when I, you know, whenever I'm going out, I'm, I tell them I'm going into battle again. I said, and the reason why I do this is because I want a better future for you. So I'm going to continue to do this till the day I die because I want something better for my children and for my grandchildren and for the future. Something's got to give here. Something's got to change. And as uh, our non-native relatives here, you know, your Americans are beginning to, well, some of them, I can't say, ah, oh, you know, and, but some are beginning to wake up and realize that they need to make some changes. And they're taking baby steps, which is fine, you know, but baby steps for their own healing. And I always say white people are starting to take up the healing from white supremacy. That's the only way to describe it because that's exactly what I've been doing, you know, all my life is healing from white supremacy and challenging everything that has to do with, you know, the, the systems that we live in. Because again, you know, they weren't of our making. We would not have created anything like this. So the other night I was speaking mm -hmm. to uh, Sustain, the UNL student organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told them, I said, imagine, you know, what it was like before, before colonization. And I talk about that in most of my presentations, BC, before colonization how things were, you know, when things were pristine, you know, when our water was clean and pure and we could drink it right from the rivers, you know, when we had food aplenty, so much food, we were so wealthy, wealthy beyond compare. We had no need for anything. We weren't homeless. We didn't have, you know, to deal with the feudal system that we're dealing with now. And believe me, we're still living in the feudal system. Who are the overlords now? Well, look at Jeff Bezos and, you know, Elon Musk and all of them. You know, what are they? So, you know, the system that was brought over here was not of our creation. And this is what I teach people now. So I said to the students there at Sustain, I said, uh, there's a lot of stereotypes that, you know, I've dealt with throughout my life about Native people. And one of them was that we're lazy, you know, we're shiftless and all this other kind of stuff. And I never understood what that meant. I didn't even know what shiftless meant. And then I realized, oh, it's like meaning like the eight to five shift and the swing shift and the graveyard shift and all this. And because we didn't live that way, we didn't work that way, then we were considered shiftless. And because we were going through so much uh, intergenerational trauma, that uh, we were in culture shock for so long that, yeah, it did appear like, you know, we didn't want to do anything because we didn't know what to do. It was like we were in shock. Our people had died, you know, we had gone through genocide. And so we were sitting there like, you know, like when, you know, when people are depressed, what do they do? So now that we've come out of our shock, you know, you see Native people in every sector you can think of. We're doing it. We're educated. We're doing things, you know. And now we're like saying, okay, we're going to indigenize the future. 
So to me, when I talk about that, I talk about indigenizing the future. And so when I asked the, the students at Sustain, I said, can you imagine what my ancestors were living like? I said, we weren't lazy. I said, if you really think about sustainability, I said, that's exactly what we were doing. We were taking care of this land. We were doing everything we were supposed to be doing here. I said, but that's hard work. I said, you know that. So we were working, you know, sun up to sundown on sustainability, sustaining this way of life that kept Mother Earth in balance for thousands of years, kept this place, Turtle Island, in balance. That was through us, through the work that we had agreed, you know, made these agreements with Mother Earth to carry out. So when the people that arrived here on these shores came and they, they thought there was nothing here like because there were no uh, fences, you know, there was no clear ownership. Well, we didn't do that. You know, we were taking care of the land because the land, Mother Earth was taking care of us. So when I talk, I talk about these things historically as well as, you know, the ongoing work now. So I, I do my best in helping people to understand Native people are, you know, restoring, restoring our traditional practices through Indigenous food sovereignty. And I see that a lot all over the place. People are growing their own foods, they're growing our traditional foods at that. And a lot of things that we're bringing back, you know, in the best way we can. And there's also a movement called the Land Back Movement. And you can look that up, hashtag Land Back. It'll show everything, bring everything up about what's happening. And what that means is like, you know, getting our land back so that we can restore it to balance. And people so don't understand, they get scared of that too. Like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? You're gonna kick us off the land. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening as we're speaking. These are, you know, like I said, all these areas that I work in, this is all because this is what Native people are doing. I speak to them because, you know, I'm involved in, you know, different places at different levels. So when people ask me to come and speak, I do so. What would you say to people that want to be a part of your work? Or maybe not even your work, but they want to go on their own their own journeys yeah. of healing and their own spiritual journeys and they want they want to get started. And you know, I thought it was really interesting how you said your elders and your mentors told you to just take a pause, live some life because your journey comes with so much suffering. What would you tell someone who was like you wanting to start as your, you know, the mentor now? What, what would you say? Well, it would depend on what they wanted to do, you know, because I have a lot of young people who ask, how do I, how can I help? 
And one thing I will say is that uh, take that time to learn, you know, to begin to learn the, the real history, the true history, not the whitewashed history. And uh, start to attend these, you know, presentations. But it's like, again, like I said, little steps at a time, because what you need to do is to begin to form relationships with the Native people. And that takes time because you have to earn their trust, you know, based on everything that we've been through. It's hard to just, you know, like we're not just going to instantly trust anybody who's coming into our circles. So, you know, one thing is uh, to know to know yourself. That's what I've been letting people know. Know yourself. What's your, you know, who are you? You know, your identity. Who are your people? Where do they come from? You know, what do you know about your own history? You know, your own family's history. You should know that because we do. You know, we know our history. We know what our people, I know my, you know, my lineage. You know, I'm, I'm not some nobody off the street. And I know my lineage. I know who I'm descended from. I know who my people are. So, you know, when I talk to people, I like to know who they are too. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where's your, you know, what did, what were your people like? You know, and I find that, you know, when they know their history, then I feel like, oh, okay, we can talk now. Because now you, you're able to not just speak as an American, because to me, an American means nothing. There's no identity there. There's no connection. you know, who they are. So then, you know, that's what I always ask people, you know, outside of that, who are you? That's what I want to know. So that's what I recommend people to find out. Find out about your people. Know your history. Know your languages, because I know that most of the people that are in this country were English-speaking. You know, they spoke all these different languages. It's like, I find that interesting if they still know their their uh, European language. You know, I find that like, yeah, that's how it should be. You know, so you know when you can approach from that place of knowing your sound and then being approach, you know, being able to come to us and then identify yourself and then let us know like. You know, I'm doing my research and I'm learning and I'm going to start looking at, you know, the intergenerational trauma in my people and begin to heal. So what I see, like I said, are, are non-Native people beginning to heal from white supremacy because what that has done has erased their own histories and cultures. Just like us, everybody that's been in this country has been assimilated. So I recommend people to, to learn about themselves and then you know, understand that there's a process of engaging with Native people. But it's like a little bit at a time, you know, and, and get to know people because there's many tribes here. We all have our histories and we're all doing you know, all this kind of work. Everybody's doing different work, kind of work. So, you know, not everybody's like me doing, 
you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, that that was by choice because I was dealing with healing. So I say, make that recommendation, learn how to become a good ally and start to, you know, learn from others who are doing allyship. But, uh, you know, begin someplace and understand that when you're doing this work, it can create some division within your people, you know, your families and everything, because they may not like it that you're, you're uh, starting on this path of healing. <laughs> it means that, you know, you're, you're no longer going to be the same person. You're not going to just go along with everything. You're going to start resisting. April, do you want to ask our final yeah. question? Uh, do you have a book that you might recommend that you've been reading or recently or just one you want to talk up? Oh, let's see. The book I've been reading lately is uh, it's titled Decolonizing Trauma Work. You know, and I'm not a... Uh, licensed therapist or anything like that. But because I work in traditional healing, a lot of the people that come to me are coming for different healing issues. Mm -hmm. uh, especially in regards to um, healing from intergenerational trauma. So I help them go through a process engaging in their own healing. But uh, the book that I've been reading is called Decolonizing Trauma Work. And I can put it here in the chat. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's about uh, strategies, stories and strategies about healing. You know, and there's uh, one section. The first one is called Colonialism, Indigenous Trauma and Healing. And there's all of these uh, topics under it. And then there's indigenous healthcare practitioners join the circle. Uh, indigenous perspectives on wellness and holistic healing, psychiatry and indigenous peoples, indigenous strategies for helping and healing and uh, a decolonizing journey. So, uh, when I read books like that, that's really helpful to everything that I do, because then by reading the stories that are in there, uh, it helps me in all the work that I do, especially in the decolonization work that I carry out in a number of ways. So. Well, I deeply, deeply appreciate you taking time to talk to us and that's you know, really educate all of our listeners on everything, just everything that we've talked about. I don't even think I can give it a good phrase to sum it up. Yeah. Would Is there any, you know, when we opened, uh, you had a way that you liked to open. Yeah. Um, is there a way that you would like to close? Sure. So in the work that I do when I'm working with people and... Again, you know, that's through our spiritual practices. What I encourage them to do is that 
each time that you go through your own healing uh, milestone, I guess that's the word I was looking for. Everybody heals at different rates. You know, no one's the same. But when you do know that you, you always see that you've accomplished something. I'm, I'm, I, something happened here. You know it. You feel it. And you feel like you made a breakthrough of some kind. So when that happens, then I let people know, you know, that's the time that you go, you say your prayers, you go and give your thanks. And uh, everybody, again, has a different way of doing those kinds, having those kinds of practices. But for me, I let people know, you know, let uh, go out and give thanks to your ancestors. You know, stand on Mother Earth, even if it's just in your backyard. Go and connect to the Earth. Give thanks to her. Give thanks to the ancestors. Give, you know, thanks to all the elements. Make your offerings. And when we say make your offerings, we're talking like, you know, oftentimes we make uh, spirit plates, you know, with whatever we happen to be eating that day or, you know, something uh, sweet, you know, fruit or you know, if you got pastries or something like that, all of these things that you can make as a gift, an offering to the, you know, to all the elements that are around you, giving thanks for your existence, that perhaps today I made it through the day, you know, I got through this time, maybe it was, you know, after a period of illness or a period of grief, you know, if you gone through some kind of transition, you know, oftentimes crises, you know, when we go through crises of all kinds, you know, we reach a certain level of understanding. Wow, I didn't know I could do that. You survived, you got through it. And to me, that's like those times when you acknowledge that. Okay, I made it through this and I grew. I have a different understanding and now I'm gonna continue to go forward. And you make your offerings and give thanks and then, you know, set your intention for the future. So this is how I live my life. You know, I set my intentions continually. Okay, what am I going to do today? All right, this is what I have, you know, on my, on my uh, calendar. But then there's always something that comes up unexpectedly, right? So I'm always prepared for that too, for all the unexpected incidences that come up so like I said even when I make out all my plans I could have everything set up it still won't go the way I think you know it'll change completely and I'm like wow I didn't see that coming but okay (laughs) so I let people know that when I do things like this to encourage them you know encourage them to give their thanks and to think about how can I do better What do I need to change? What do I need to do? So, you know, set in your intention. That's what I leave, you know, people with and encouraging them that way. Well, thank you. That's what we got to do. Thank you so much. And, you know, if you have a new project that you're working on or something you ever want to talk about, come back and we'll talk about it. Well, thank you very much for inviting inviting me to come and share my story. I appreciate it so much. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. 
Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com. Thank you.